Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we enter into the study of the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather. We ask that you help us understand your Word, help us digest it and make it part of our lives and transform us by it, please. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we begin our study of the final biblical covenant, which is the new covenant. But before we do that, let me just spend a few minutes closing the Davidic covenant with respect to David's response to God when God gave the promise of the covenant. Because it's, it's important not to miss the, the prayer, which is David's response. He responds to God with this prayer of intense gratitude. Remember, the Davidic covenant is about house, throne, and kingdom. An eternal house, an eternal throne, and an eternal kingdom. Please turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7. The first part of the chapter is God giving the covenant to David. And then the second part of the chapter is, God, is David's response to God, David's prayer to God in response to this covenant. David understands the incredible nature of this promise. He understands that it is literal and eternal. And so his prayer reflects this. It's a prayer of great gratitude. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 18 reads like this. Then David the king went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God? Now this phrase, David went in and sat before the Lord, probably means that he went into the tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant was. Because remember, David starts this chapter with the reference to the Ark, how he has a house of, he lives in a house of cedar, meaning a palace, but the Ark is in the tent. Now, the, the reference here to the tent at the beginning of the chapter and this language here in verse 18 about how David went in, it probably means that he went into the tabernacle, but that's, that's not the tabernacle. The tabernacle is not in Jerusalem at this time. David built a, a tent for the ark. Because remember, David took Jerusalem from the Jebusites. The ark is at Kiriath-Jearim, where it's been for about 100 years. David brings the ark. It's quite an event there in chapter 6. David brings the ark to Jerusalem, and David builds a tent that is not the tabernacle, but it's a tent. It's a tabernacle. Remember, tabernacle is just another word for tent. It's a fancy word for tent. He builds a tabernacle for the ark, so it's just not there. It's just not there in Jerusalem or there in the palace. It's in a special location, and this language in verse 18 about David going in and sitting before the Lord it's probably him going in to, to this tabernacle. We don't know exactly what that tabernacle looked like, but the, the idea that David goes in and he sits down before the Lord is this, this image that you really don't see very often in, in Hebrew Bible. Usually, usually it's, an, it's, it's an issue of, of standing, but here we have this man who is intimate with God, who sits in his presence. And notice the language that is used here in, in David's prayer. He says, Who am I, O Lord God? This is the first of a number of different names of God that David will use in his prayer. 
If you, understand, if you want to understand God, you study his names. If you want to understand the devil, you study the devil's names. name, a name reveals something. Like, it, like, like, you know, for us, our parents just gave us a name. Well, that name may or may not reflect who we are. But God's names reflect and describe who he is. And so here David says, O Lord God. Notice the capitalization of Lord God. It's a construction that we've seen before. One word is in initial caps, meaning the first letter of the word is capitalized and all the other letters are lowercase. And the other word is in small caps, meaning the first letter is capitalized and the other letters of the word are also capitalized, but smaller caps. Anybody remember this construction that we've seen here before? Lord God, Lord being initial caps and God being, being small caps. In the Hebrew, this is Adonai Yahweh. But because the, the Hebrews stopped pronouncing Yahweh, our translators, when they translate Yahweh, they, they, they don't translate it as Yahweh. They translate it as Lord, as if it were Adonai. Because that's what Adonai means. Adonai means Lord. So our, our Bible translators, when they get to Yahweh, following the tradition of the Israelites that they picked up, sometime after they left the Babylonian captivity, but was not the tradition in the time of Moses or in the time of David or in the time of Isaiah or Habakkuk or any of the, the Old Testament writers. But remember the tradition that they picked up after the 70-year exile in Babylon, they stopped pronouncing the name. I know how we're not going to take the Lord's name in vain. We're not even going to say it. When we get to the name Yahweh, we're going to say something else. We're going to say Adonai. We're going to say Lord. So our Bible translators, when, when they get in the Hebrew to the, to the sacred tetragrammaton, yod He vav He, which we believe is pronounced Yahweh, they put in our Bibles, not Yahweh, but they put Lord, following that tradition of not pronouncing the name. And they put Lord in small caps, capital L, O-R-D, O-R-D, being well, big capital L, and then O-R-D also being capitalized, but smaller caps. But that's not what we have here, right? We have Lord, big L, lowercase O-R-D, God, God being in initial caps. So this is the construction, Adonai Yahweh. But because we've got this tradition that, that, that we've adopted where we don't pronounce the Yahweh, you got to do something with that, because it would make no sense if it said, Lord, Lord. I mean, if the translators followed the, 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 the pattern that, that they've established, when they got to Yahweh, they'd say, Lord, small caps. And then they have Lord already, because it says Adonai. But it doesn't make any sense to say, Lord, Lord. So they take the second name, Yahweh, and they make it God. It's actually not what it says. It says Yahweh. Yahweh is his personal name. Your name is Mark, and your name is John, and your name is Celia, and my name is Alejandro. Call me my name, God says in Exodus 3. His name is Yahweh. But because we have this tradition that we've followed, we don't have his name. Instead, another word is given, an incredible name, a proper name. A powerful name, God, but that is not what the text says. The text says Adonai, Yahweh. And so 
really, if you were following the original tradition, if you were pronouncing the name, you'd approach it and you'd say, Adonai Yahweh. You'd say, Lord Yahweh. It's a way of saying sovereign Yahweh. So a great way to, to think of this is sovereign Yahweh. Sovereign, if you want to follow the, 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 the more modern tradition, sovereign Lord. And the, it is translated here, Lord God. David will use this construction, Adonai Yahweh, seven times in this prayer. Keep reading in verse 18. Let me just start from the beginning again. Then David the king went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Though David was the mighty, powerful king, he is a man of humility, and so he gives God all the credit, all of it. Keep reading in verse 19. And yet this was insignificant in your eyes, O Lord God. There we see the construction again. O Lord God, Adonai Yahweh, for you have spoken also of the house of your servant concerning the distant future. You see, the covenant is prophetic. The covenant is a promise of prophecy, what's coming in the distant future. And then David says at the end of verse 19, And this is the custom of man, O Lord God. The third time we've seen that construction. In his humility, David knew that it was God who took him from the pasture from being a mere shepherd of sheep and made him king over all of Israel. And as great as that blessing was, it was utterly insignificant. That's the word David uses. It is insignificant. It is small. It is tiny in comparison to the great covenant, the forever covenant, the covenant involving the distant future that God has given. The giant killer, the mighty king, knew his place before God, and so he calls himself a servant. He will call himself a servant ten times in this prayer. This king knows what servants are. He is served by servants upon servants upon servants. But the king, in his great power, calls himself a servant. Eved in the Hebrew. A servant because he knows his place in God's order of things. He is a creature and he is not God. And he recognizes this in his great Humility, that's what makes David great, because he's a humble man. Verse 20, again, what more can David say to you? Now David's speaking in the third person. For you know your servant, O Lord God. There's the construction again. For the sake of your word and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness to let your servant know. Let your servant know what? David is a man who knows his Bible. David is not a man who is biblically illiterate, like the overwhelming percentage of the children of God today. He knows his Bible. And so God, David understands that God is fulfilling his word, his earlier word. Look at verse 21. For the sake of your word, you have done this. It's for the sake of... God's earlier word that he has given the covenant, the covenant about kingship, the covenant about rulership. Remember, the covenant is about a Davidic king who will sit on a Davidic throne and rule over a Davidic kingdom, which is Israel forever. Each component, the king, the throne, and the kingdom, are each eternal. And David says here, this is fulfillment of your word, because David knows about 
what God has promised in the past, what God promised to Abraham, a kingly line, which he then repeated to Abraham's son, Isaac, a kingly line, was the promise in the Abrahamic covenant to Abraham that God gave to Isaac, that God gave to Abraham's grandson Jacob, and that God gave to Abraham's great-grandson Judah. Not Judy. Judah. And so David understands God's prior word, and he recognizes that the Davidic covenant is fulfillment of the word. Human history is marching inescapably to an event that God is moving the chess pieces on the chessboard to accomplish. There is a destiny that human history is marching towards. It is not as if history just kind of randomly proceeds down a sequential line. It does proceed in sequence, but it is proceeding consistently, methodically to an event. And that event is the fulfillment of the covenant. The event that human history is marching toward is the event where a man will sit on the Davidic throne to rule a Davidic kingdom. And that man will rule first for a thousand years and then into eternity forever. He will rule as the final Davidic king. Israel will be his agents. We've seen many times in the scripture in Hebrew Bible that in the millennium, in the thousand year reign, that Jesus will rule and he will rule through Israel. Israel will be his agents. Davidic king, Davidic throne, Davidic kingdom. His kingdom is Israel. And through Israel, he will rule the planet. Israel will be his agents. And so will you and me. Resurrected saints, resurrected believers, resurrected Old Testament believers, and resurrected church age believers will also rule with Jesus in that thousand-year period. Not just in the thousand-year period, but forever, because God made us to rule in humility, in submission, in intimacy with Him, which is to say in righteousness and in holiness. Now the prayer shifts. David has begun his prayer with thanksgiving and gratitude, and now the prayer shifts to praise. Look at verse 22. David says, for this reason you are great, O Lord God. Same construction. For there is none like you, and there is no God beside you. According to all that we have heard with our ears, there is no God but the God of Israel. It is the God of Israel that saves you from your sins. It is the God of Israel that we worship. It is the God of Israel that we have redeemed. And it is the God of Israel who fulfills this great covenant. Verse 23, And what nation, David says, on the earth is like your people Israel, whom God went to redeem for himself as a people and to make a name for himself, and to do a great thing for you and awesome things for your land, before your people whom you have redeemed for yourself from Egypt, from nations and their gods. David recognizes that it is all about God, because God alone is, is worthy. Israel exists because of God. In his sovereignty, he created the nation. In his sovereignty, he redeemed the nation from slavery in Egypt. And he did this in order to proclaim his great name among the nations and to show that all the other gods are bogus. All the other gods are impostures. All the other gods are impotent. All the other gods are no gods. 
Keep reading in verse 24. For you have established for yourself your people Israel as your own people forever. And you, O Lord, have become their God. Now, therefore, O Lord God. Look at that. Now, therefore, O Lord God. What looks different there? Yeah. There's a change in the construction. Now God's not in caps. Lord's in caps. You see that? Lord is in small caps, and God is in what you'd call initial caps, where the first letter's capitalized, and the rest of the letters are lowercase. This isn't Adonai Yahweh, like the construction that we started out with. This is Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh Elohim, Lord God. In his prayer of gratitude and praise, David exalts and glorifies many of the names of God. He calls on, he praises the various names of God. Now the prayer shifts from praising God to asking God to bring it on, if I could use a street phrase. To bring it on, to bring fulfillment of this great covenant, verse 25. Now, therefore, O Lord God, he goes back to, excuse me, he continues this new construction, which is Yahweh Elohim. Now, therefore, O Yahweh Elohim, the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and his house, confirm it forever and do as you have spoken, that your name may be magnified forever by saying, the Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And may the house of your servant David be established Before you, here David calls on another name of God. He elevates another name of God, Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, or the Lord of the armies. David's desire is for God's great and awesome name to be praised. One of the reasons why God created us is that we would glorify His name. Fulfillment of the Davidic covenant will bring praise to God's name. And this is what David longs for. This is what David seeks. Raise your hand if you want to be blessed by God. That's me. You want to be blessed by God? Double hand, right? Of course. The formula is very simple. It's very simple how to get blessed by God. This is not complicated. You see it with David. The reason God blesses David exponentially, eternal blessings, Jesus is called the son of David, not the son of Muhammad, not the son of Buddha, not the son of Billy Bob, the son of David. The Messiah is the son of David. The reason God blesses David exponentially is simple. This is not complicated. It is because David is a man after the Lord's own heart. The Hebrew word for heart is lev. Lev means the seat of emotions, the seat of the will. David seeks the will of God. Simple. If we will seek the will of God, then God will bless you. This is not complicated. We make it complicated in our pride, in our arrogance, in our sinfulness, in our stubbornness. But if we will submit, which is the only proper response to God, if we will submit, then he will shower us with his blessing. If we will seek his will. What David does here, without ever having heard the Lord's Prayer from Matthew 6, right, in the Lord's Prayer, what is, what is Jesus, when he, when he teaches us how to, how to pray, what does he say? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. David, a thousand years before Jesus utters those words, in effect, 
is praying that prayer, seeking that the Lord's will will be done. He's not asking that the Lord's will will be done and thinking, "Mm, I hope it's going to happen. I don't know if it's going to happen. So I'm going to ask you, God, that you do your will. That's not what he's thinking. The will of God is going to be done regardless of whether David prays this prayer or not. God's will is unstoppable. What David is saying is bring it. Do it. It's just like the Apostle John at the end of the book. The book at the end of the Bible, at the end of Revelation 22. John can't help himself. After this great revelation, it's not the revelations. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the last book in the Bible. And all the roads lead into that book. It's just like all roads lead to Rome. And the Romans would say that because it was all about Rome. What they really meant is all roads led from Rome out through the empire. But that statement rings true with respect to the Bible. All roads lead into the book of Revelation. And after the angel and after God Almighty and after the Lamb, Jesus Christ reveals this great revelation to John. John gets to the end of the book and he can't help himself. He just says, bring it. Come, Lord Jesus, are his exact words at the end of the book. This is what David is is praying. He's saying, do it. Bring it on, God. Fulfill the promise that I know you have made here and that I know you will fulfill, so do it. This is an incredible prayer of gratitude and praise and request for fulfillment. Keep reading in verse 27. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made a revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Remember, David wanted to build a house for God, a temple of sticks and bricks. And God says, no, you're not going to do that. I'm going to build a house for you, a dynasty. Verse 28, now, O Lord God, David goes back to the original construction, Adonai Yahweh. You are God, and your words are truth, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and your blessing may be the house of your servant. And with your blessing, may the house of your servant be blessed forever. David understands the covenant to be everlasting, and he understands that its fulfillment is certain It is certain because of the word of God. This is why David says, For you, O Lord God, have spoken. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Close the book. Let's go home. That's it. That's all we need to know is that God has spoken. Because the word of God is unstoppable. The flower fades and the grass withers, but the word of our Lord stands forever. David knows this. David trusts this, and so it gives him courage. That's a prayer of courage to say, God, bring it on. It gives him courage because he trusts in God. With that, we conclude the Davidic covenant, a covenant about a Davidic king who will sit on a Davidic throne and rule his Davidic kingdom, Israel, forever. But there's more to a kingdom than a king. There's more to a kingdom than just the king. A king needs subjects. A king needs not just garden variety subjects, not just subjects that are any kind of subject. He needs loyal subjects. 
And if the king's subjects hate him and revolt against him, then that's no kingdom at all. That's a weak, powerless, hollow kingdom. This is where the new covenant comes in. The new covenant is about transformation of the Jewish people. Instead of rebelling against him, they will serve him. Like the Mosaic and Davidic covenants, the new covenant is sourced in the Abrahamic covenant. It is the outworking, part of the outworking of the Abrahamic covenant. It's fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. The new covenant is. Just like the Davidic covenant and just like the Mosaic covenant. As we've seen, the Abrahamic covenant is the granddaddy of all the covenants. The Mosaic, the Davidic, and the new flow out of the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is comprised of land, seed, and blessing. The promises of land, seed, and blessing, as we've seen, and each one of those is unconditional and everlasting. The Davidic covenant fulfills the seed promise that is in the Abrahamic covenant. A descendant of Abraham, who's also a descendant of David, will reign forever. That's the Davidic covenant fulfilling the seed part of the Abrahamic covenant. The Mosaic Covenant, on the other hand, fulfills the blessing promise of the Abrahamic Covenant. In God's paradigm, this is very important, in God's paradigm, which is the only paradigm, in God's matrix, which is the only matrix, obedience always precedes blessing. Obedience always precedes blessing. Obedience always precedes blessing. Obedience always precedes blessing. Not the other way around. Bless me, God, and then I'll obey. It don't work that way. Obedience always precedes blessing. And so in the Mosaic Covenant, in the Mosaic Law, God laid out the obedience that was needed for Israel to receive the blessing. The Mosaic Covenant was the manner in which God would bless Israel. It was a conditional manner. You obey me, I will bless you. You disobey me, I will curse you. And the blessing and the cursing was tied to the land. The Mosaic Covenant, when I say that it's fulfillment of the blessing part of the Abrahamic Covenant, that's related to the land because the land was part of the promise So they would be blessed in the land this way and that way. You remember in Deuteronomy 28, it's this kind of blessing and that kind of blessing. No, God, I don't want any more blessing. Just blessing, 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 blessing. Stop it, God. There's so much blessing. That's almost how 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 it sounds in Deuteronomy 28. Blessing upon blessing upon blessing in the land for obedience. Leviticus 26, the same way. And then it shifts for cursing with respect to disobedience. Cursing, cursing, cursing in the land. And then the final act of cursing, the final act of divine discipline in Deuteronomy 28 is that God will rip them from their land and scatter them among the nations. That's the status quo in the year 2023. And so remember, the Mosaic Covenant is about the blessing, the fulfillment of the blessing part of the Abrahamic Covenant. And that blessing involves the land as well. We saw that the Mosaic Covenant is temporary. It was temporary with respect to the regulatory part of the covenant, 
the regulations, the rituals, those were temporary. They pointed to Christ. Now, the revelatory part of the Mosaic Covenant, the Mosaic Law, that's forever. What God values, God's morality, who God is, those things are revealed in the Mosaic Covenant. Even though the Mosaic Covenant is, is temporary, the aspects, many aspects of God, including what He values, including His standard of morality, that's forever. Forever. Even into eternity. Over the centuries, God kept His part of the conditional Mosaic Covenant. But Israel violated her part consistently. Over and over and over. In fact, right away. Right away. When they were in the wilderness, they violated. Israel violated her part in the Mosaic Covenant so often that she never fully enjoyed the blessing. She never fully enjoyed the blessing of the Abrahamic Covenant. Remember, Mosaic Covenant is the way of blessing from the Abrahamic Covenant. So what does God do? God gives a new one. God gives a new covenant that is new and different from the first covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, which is the way of blessing, but they never fully enjoyed the blessing because they always disobeyed. What does God do? God comes along and gives them a new covenant so that they will fully enjoy the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant, finally, and they will enjoy it through the new covenant. The new covenant is the last of the biblical covenants. And like the Mosaic covenant, it fulfills the blessing and land parts of the Abrahamic covenant. But it does so in a very, very, very different way. The new covenant is God's promise to transform Israel into the kingdom of priests that she was always intended to be, so that she will permanently, permanently, first for a thousand years and then into eternity forever, enjoy his blessings, including his blessing with respect to the land. The Davidic covenant, the Davidic kingdom, I should say, is pathetic, pathetic and pointless if the king rules over people in his kingdom that hate him and that seek to kill him and that revolt against him. The Davidic kingdom will be ridiculous if the people in the kingdom resist their king and rebel against their king as they have in the past. By and large, the Old Testament is characterized by Israel revolting against God. Hebrew Bible often describes Israel as stubborn, stiff-necked, and spiritually adulterous. That's a very sharp term. Spiritually adulterous, like a whore. Remember Hosea? God says, Hosea, you go find a whore and you marry her. That's just what it says. You find a prostitute and you marry her, and that's an image of me and Israel. Because they engage in whoredom before me. Spiritual adultery. Very strong graphic imagery that God uses to describe Israel's violation of the Mosaic Covenant. Consistent, revolting, and rebelling against Him. The kingdom is absurd. The Davidic kingdom, the Davidic covenant is absurd if Israel revolts against the king as she has done in the past. 
Israel's ultimate rebellion against God was so intense that when God sent the king to her, she rejected the king. She rejected the king's offer of the Davidic kingdom, and she hated him so much that she murdered the king. The Israel of the new covenant will be very, very different. She will be characterized by obedience, by submission. By submission to God and to his Davidic king, a king who, make no mistake, is coming back. It is through the new covenant that God accomplishes all of this. In the new covenant, God will transform the Jewish people spiritually in four ways. Number one, their sins will be forgiven. Number two, they will receive new hearts. Number three, they will receive supernatural empowerment through the permanent indwelling of God the Holy Spirit. Number four, God's word will live within them. Now when you think about those four spiritual things, you can't help but think about the teaching of the apostles to church-age believers. If you're thinking that church-age believers have those four things, you'd be right. You'd be accurate. We have those four things. And how can I say that when, I, when, when a few minutes ago I said that the new covenant is given to Israel? I'll repeat it. The new covenant is given to Israel. It's not given to the church. How can I say both of those things? How can I say out of, out of, one thing out of one side of my mouth and the other thing out of the other side of my mouth and then it, through the middle of my mouth I say that Israel is distinct from the church? I say that the church does not replace Israel. How can all of those things be true at the same time? Stay tuned. Stay tuned. We'll see the answer to that question as we go through this study. The new covenant is found primarily in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. We'll look at those passages in our study. But before we do, I want you to see a couple of earlier references A couple of early references to the covenant, to the new covenant. Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 59. Isaiah chapter 59. Isaiah prophesied in the late 700s B.C. and and even into the early 600s. When I say early, you know, when you're B.C., everything's going backwards, right? So early 600s is 690s. 680s. What we are going to see here in Isaiah 59 is this description. It's Isaiah, we're going to start with Isaiah 59, verse 17. The text begins with the divine warrior who is engaged in warfare against his enemies, against the enemies of Israel. It's describing the end of the seven year tribulation when the Davidic king will return, will destroy the enemies of Israel, and will take control of the planet. He will assume the Davidic throne over the Davidic kingdom, Israel. Isaiah 59, verse 17. He, the divine warrior, put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. According to their deeds, so he will repay wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. To the coastlands he will make recompense. Coastlands is a reference to Gentiles, the Gentiles who are gathered at 
Har Megiddo, Armageddon, against Israel. Keep reading in verse 19. So they will fear the name of Yahweh from the west, and the, 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 the west, the, the, the far reaches of the world. So they will fear the name of Yahweh from the west, and His glory from the rising of the sun. West and sun. This is a West and the rising of the sun. This is a merism. That extreme, that extreme, and everything in between. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of Yahweh drives. Now the text shifts to redemption. A redeemer will come to Zion. That's the king. And to those who turn from transgression in Jacob. Remember, Jacob's another name for Israel. Declares Yahweh. The divine redeemer will bring salvation and deliverance to Israel is what's being declared in verse 20. Look at verse 21. As for me, this is my covenant. There's our word. My covenant with them, says Yahweh. My spirit which is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth. He's speaking to Jacob. He's speaking to to the nation of Israel. My spirit which is upon you and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth nor from the mouth of your offspring, nor from the mouth of your offspring's offspring, says Yahweh, from now and forever. This is an early reference to the new covenant. And here God speaks of elements number three and four of the spiritual transformation that is involved in the new covenant. He speaks of the supernatural empowerment through the indwelling of the Spirit. He speaks of God planting His word or His law within them. The Spirit brings God's Word and implants God's Word into their hearts so that they are now characterized by the Word of God. And they speak it. They speak it to each other. They speak it to everyone who is in their periphery. This blessing will happen during the thousand-year reign, during the millennial reign of the Davidic king. That thousand-year reign follows the seven-year tribulation. This is the period, the thousand-year reign, is the time when Israel will enjoy the blessings of the new covenant, the blessings that are provided by the Redeemer, the name that is given there in verse 20. But it's not just in the millennium where the new covenant will be enjoyed by Israel. Notice the last word of verse 21, forever, forever. This covenant, like the Abrahamic covenant, is eternal. The reason we study these Jewish covenants They're Jewish covenants. That's what they are. God gave these covenants to Israel, to the Jewish people. The reason we care, even though we're not Jewish, we're we're the Goy, we're the Gentiles, the reason we care is because through them, when God blesses them, He blesses all the nations. They're like a pipeline, like a conduit. They get the blessing first, and then it goes to everyone. This is what was baked into the Abrahamic covenant, right? Genesis 12, verse 3. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed, Abraham. Well, Abraham's first got to get the blessing, because it's in him. And then through him, the blessing flows to all the peoples, Jewish. Well, when I say all the peoples in that context, it's the Gentiles. Isaiah 61, verse 7, is another reference to the New Covenant. Please turn there in your Bibles. This passage contrasts divine discipline 
and divine, dis- and divine blessing. Isaiah does two things at the same time. He condemns Israel for her disobedience, for her rebellion against God, and he warns of impending judgment, impending divine discipline. At the same time, he comforts the people with words of hope, the new covenant. This is what the prophets do. The prophets are covenant enforcers. The prophets come in and proclaim God's judgment for violating the covenant, the Mosaic covenant. And so when, the, when any of the prophets, Habakkuk, Hosea, Isaiah, when any of them came in, they would proclaim discipline for violation of the covenant. And then you'll also find sprinkled into the word, the horrible words of discipline and judgment, you'll find these gems of prophecy. Because the prophets, by definition, are full of prophecy, right? And so you find these gems of prophecy. Some of the prophecies are fulfilled in that era, and some of them are fulfilled in the future, in the distant future, to use David's language from chapter 7 of 1 Samuel. So this is what the prophet Isaiah is going to do. He's going to speak of discipline and condemnation for sin, while at the same time promising hope, hope that they will cling to during the day of discipline, hope that is a future for Israel. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 7, reads like this. Instead of your shame, you shall have a double portion. And instead of humiliation, they will shout for joy over their portion. Therefore, they will possess a double portion in their land. Everlasting joy will be theirs. This is temporary joy. Right? No. It says everlasting joy. This is forever Permanent joy, eternal joy. Look at verse 8. For I, Yahweh, love justice. I hate robbery in the burnt offering. And I will faithfully give them their recompense and make an everlasting covenant. There it is. An everlasting covenant with them. We know this cannot be the Mosaic covenant. Because the Mosaic covenant is not described as everlasting. It's not the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant was already given. Back in 2 Samuel 7, David lives around 1000 B.C. Isaiah is around 700 B.C., so 300 years later, and make an everlasting covenant with them. Verse 9, Then their offspring will be known among the nations, and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them will recognize them because they are offspring, because they are the offspring whom the Lord has blessed. Now in this early reference to the new covenant, there are no references to the four elements, to the four elements of the covenant. Remember the four elements that God will forgive their sin, that they will receive new hearts, they will, that they will receive supernatural empowerment through the indwelling in the spirit, and that God's word will live within them. You don't see any of those four elements here in Isaiah chapter 61. God simply refers to the everlasting covenant And he speaks generally about divine blessing. Because the new covenant is about fulfillment of the blessing part of the Abrahamic covenant. But permanent fulfillment. Not the temporary fulfillment in the the Mosaic covenant where they'd obey and it'd be temporarily fulfilled and then they'd disobey and there'd be discipline. The new covenant is permanent, unconditional, eternal 
joy from God that is through the blessing of the new covenant. Today, many people scorn the Jews. And that's because Israel is under God's punishment. It's because Israel is under divine discipline. Now, that may not be why. People may not necessarily think, I'm scorning the Jews because they're under divine discipline. And before I forget, I should be clear about this. It is the ultimate in stupidity for a Christian to ever, to ever get engaged in anti-Semitism for a variety of reasons. One is that, that God will discipline you. You want the opposite of blessing? You want discipline? Get involved in anti-Semitism. And the other absolute absurdity involved when a Christian gets involved in anti-Semitism is we worship a Jew. The head of the church is a Jew. We know it, the only reason we know anything about God is because of the Jews. And so it reveals absolute ignorance of the Word of God and, God and God's plan for a Christian to get involved in anti-Semitism. The world, by and large, scorns the Jew. And that is because, even though they may not consciously think this way, that is because Israel is under divine discipline today. The discipline will reach its climax in the second half of the seven-year tribulation, what is referred to by Jesus as the Great Tribulation. After that, in the millennium, everything will change. Everything will change for Israel and for the rest of the peoples for the planet. In the millennium, Israel will be characterized by the blessing of the new covenant when the Jews will be known as those, what's the phrase at the end of verse 9? Somebody read it for me. The, there you go, the offspring whom the Lord has blessed. Is that how people think of the Jews today? No, they don't. They're under discipline today. But in the millennium, they will be characterized as, whoa, those are the ones that God's blessing. And everybody's going to want to be with a Jew. They're going to be like magnets. Magnets to draw the people to them. Why? So that they can be prideful and arrogant? No. So that people can have access to the king, who's a Jewish king, who will rule a Jewish kingdom. And through that Jewish kingdom, he will rule the planet. And that's why everybody's going to flock to Jerusalem. That's why Jerusalem's going to be the capital of the world, the political capital and the religious capital of the world. And the Jews will be viewed with great, 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 great high esteem, not because they're so amazing, but because their God is so amazing. And their God blesses them. And they will be characterized by God's blessing first for a thousand years and then for eternity upon eternity Upon eternity, the new covenant is fulfillment of the blessing part of the Abrahamic covenant, which includes the land part of the Abrahamic covenant. Land, seed, blessing. Land is part of the blessing. And that's why you see here in verse 7, they will possess a double portion in their land. Those two things are tied, the land and the promise. God is a joke. You should make fun of God. Mock God if he does not bring Israel back to her land. Because he's a liar. He's either a liar or he's weak. One or the other. Unable to fulfill his promises. Or a deceiver. If he does not fulfill the promises that he has already given to Israel. Over and over and over. 
the regathering, the regathering of Israel in the land in belief. One of the most frequent promises that is found in all of the scripture is the regathering. And so these two things go together, the blessing and the land, and it is the new covenant that is going to fulfill all of these things. Next time we're going to see the, the, the meat of the new covenant, which is in those passages of Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather. We ask that you help us understand these things. Help us parse through the word of God and then consume it like a fine meal that it may encourage us and embolden us and give us confidence that your will will be done. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.